Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, CNN, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Evening, Mari. Who's your guest tonight? Well, we have a great guest tonight. You know, a lot of people hear about the Freedom of Information Act and have no idea what it is. It is a federal law that we're going to learn about tonight, and we are so thrilled that tonight we are speaking with somebody all the way from Virginia, Harry A. Hammett, who happens to be the editor and publisher of Access Reports, which is a bi-weekly newsletter on the Freedom of Information Act and open government laws and policies. And this is so important in this, this age of information that is being shared and sold, and the government happens to be able to buy this information and the Privacy Act, all this good stuff that we need to know about because the government has a lot of information about us. He is the primary editor of a book that I have sitting right in front of me called Litigation Under the Federal Open Government Laws of 2000. 2006. I wish I would have had this when I made my Freedom of Information Act request. It's fantastic, tells lots of good stuff. It's a thick book, but it sure is a wonderful guide and a resource. Harry has received his BA from the University of Michigan. He holds an MA in journalism from the University of Missouri and a law degree from George Washington School of Law. He has worked as an information specialist for the Consumer Product Safety Commission and for FOI Services, a third-party requesting company that deals primarily with business in the food and drug industry. He became editor of Access Reports in 1985 and became publisher in 1989. He has written and and lectured extensively on access and privacy issues in both the United States and Canada, and he's president of the American Society of Access Professionals, and he's conducted that organization's annual seminar on business information for more than 10 years. He was inducted into the Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame at the Freedom Forum in Arlington, Virginia in 2001, and you can learn more about him and find out about the newsletter at accessreports.com. Thank you, Harry, for joining us this evening. Well, thank you. Well, this is really something. You know, the Freedom of Information Act, first of all, 
Let's tell our audience here, we're sitting on the campus of the University of California in mm-hmm. Irvine, California. We also have business people who are driving by right here in Irvine, and they can hear us in Newport Beach. And also we've got podcasts, so people, not very many people really know what really is the Freedom of Information Act. Could you explain it to my audience? Sure. The Freedom of Information Act is an um, act that Congress passed in 1966 and during Lyndon Johnson's presidency and and Johnson reluctantly signed it on the on the 4th of July of all times um, <laughs> but he was not particularly excited about about signing it and the bureauc- the executive branch has never never been terribly keen about it in general basically what it does is it allows anyone regardless of citizenship to ask a federal agency for any kind of records or information that that the requester believes that agency might have. And the agency is, under the statute, is supposed to respond within 20 working days, which essentially is four weeks. And they can respond by providing all the information that the requester wants. That would be the, that would be the best of all worlds for the requester some of the information that the requester wants and withhold some of the information, none of the information withholding at all, or they could say that they don't have any uh, any information responsive to, uh, to the uh, uh, requester's uh, request, which is in, the, in the, lingo, the, the lingo is called obviously a no records response. There are nine exemptions that an agency can theoretically use to withhold information. Most of the exemptions are fairly self-explanatory as far as the as far as the type of information that is covered. I mean, uh, there is uh, national security, uh, business information, uh, information which would be an invasion of privacy. There is a uh, law enforcement exemption. There is also one of the biggest exemptions is an exemption that essentially incorporates most of the major privileges that that are available, including the kind of a extraordinarily broad-based privilege that's known as the deliberative process privilege, which is really pertinent only specifically to governments, government government people who are working in government. Uh, and as I say, an agency can invoke any of those uh, exemptions. And uh, the requester's choice, if if he or she is not satisfied with the response, has several choices. The first choice is that they can appeal, they can file an administrative appeal, which would go to somebody normally an attorney higher up in the agency to review. That at that point, the agency can either release more information or essentially affirm the original. Uh, information decision. If that happens, if, either, if at that point he, um, the requester is still not satisfied, then the requester has the opportunity to go to district court, U.S. District Court, and the uh, the District of Columbia Circuit in Washington D.C. is what's known as the jurisdiction of uh, what am I saying? Uh, universal venue, so anybody can file there, or you can file where you live or where your place of business is. Or you can file where the agency records um, are located, which typically is probably going to be Washington, but it, I mean it could theoretically be anywhere in the United States, depending on where the agency is. So there's three different places where you can file, and basically then you you start <laughs> you start working your way through the uh, through the litigation process thereafter. And theoretically, the case can go up to the Supreme Court, although extremely extremely unlikely. The Supreme Court has heard about. 
uh, about 30 cases since the early 70s, more or less. So, not not too many cases. So that's basically, in a uh, you know, in a nutshell, what what the what it is. But I mean, uh, overall, it, it's a statutory right that gives people a right to information. And as I say. Um, just because you want to get the information doesn't mean that you will necessarily be able to get the information or even that the information exists but you know it is it's the it's the only real enforceable right that that we have uh, this is not we do not have a constitutional right in, uh, to information that the government has um i think there is certainly implicitly a a thread within the first amendment that would suggest that uh you know in order to exercise our rights of free speech and and press and petition and whatnot that we need to know that we need to have access to government information but uh, the Supreme Court has said uh, on a couple of occasions that the freedom of inf- freedom of information is not is not a constitutional right so um, so we basically get just get it from that statute the the uh, yes on the federal level I mean I'll just say in in passing that um, states have have similar laws, and right. some states actually do have a constitutional right to access records, but in reality, the right is not really much <laughs> much different than it is on the federal level. California and Florida, as kind of leading state, as states with access laws, both have constitutional rights, but I mean, uh, neither of them really you know, I think I think the constitutional aspect makes the courts pay more attention to it, but it doesn't really enhance the requester's rights in 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 court or, or on the administrative level. I know we have in California the Information Practices Act, which mm-hmm. we can make requests under, which is interesting. So people need to know that. But for federal agencies, all you can use is the Freedom of Information Act, and then for the state, you have to use your own state. Law. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Lloyd wants to ask a question here. I don't know why he didn't ask it himself. He says, what's the most asked for type of information? (laughs) That that is an interesting... I suppose that that the most asked for type of information, um, you know, if you were able to really quantify it precisely, is probably... Is probably personal information about about the individual making the request or a or you know associates of an individual. So I mean I think I think that in, the, that that sort of information is probably the, the as as a as a discrete category is probably the most commonly sought after information. Um, one of one of the larger groups, and I mean I don't know that the percentage is really anywhere near as that large, but prisoners use use the FOIA quite. The fo- FOIA is what is the acronym we use for the Freedom of Information Act. Um, they use it quite a quite a bit, and they're almost always trying to look for information apropos to uh, their court case, which is oftentimes information about whether somebody ratted on them or uh, uh, you know something along that nature. Um, as and don't a, as journalists a, also use it? Um, journalists, you know, I mean, the law was really it was uh, the the. Movement towards the law um, started after World War II, say perhaps the beginning of the 1950s, and it was really it was the it was the institutional in, uh, press that was pushing for it. But in reality, the press does not use the Freedom of Information Act very often, largely no. because it takes too long to get information and. Um, uh, investigative uh, reporters use it with uh, 
they occasionally use it quite uh, you know quite well and uh, and and get a lot of useful information. But it, it's a matter of having uh, having sufficient amount of time. And when I say time, you can oftentimes be talking certainly in months and and more and just as likely in years before you get what you're looking for. So so I it's mean, better it, for them to just go and find somebody who's going to share this information on the sly and not give their name like we've seen before. Um, yes, basically. <laughs> I mean, the other thing about the other thing that I like to I, I like to remind people when I talk about this is is probably a, well I'll say certainly a more aggressive um, uh, segment of society as far as as far as using FOIA is uh, is the public interest community and they almost always set out with you know trying to get information that that deals with their specific their specific interest or, 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 you know, point of view. But once they get that information, almost invariably they will, you know, make it available to the press as quickly as possible. And so a lot of times when you see articles about something that, you know, has, has happened or, or somebody has found out something at the FDA or, or the SEC or any number of places, oftentimes that may be as a result of a interest group getting information and then and then sharing it with uh, with the press. So so the press I often refer to as a as a secondary or tertiary beneficiary of of information from FOIA. I know one of your co-authors is Mark Rotenberg from Epic, the right. the uh, Electronic Privacy Information Center, and they have made many Freedom of Information Act requests, and then they've shared it and they've testified about it. So you're right that these um, public interest research groups have really done a lot of good things to bring out some information out there. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about why this is really necessary. You know, people who are driving by or these university students might say, well, I, I don't get it. I mean, what do I need that for? I don't need to know any. What do I need to know? Well, as I say, I mean, I, I think that the government is probably the single largest trove of information that is available to anyone. And I don't, it's, the, the FOIA is not necessarily something that one wakes up in the morning and says, now, what sort of, what sort of uh, request for information should I be making to, to some agency? But I mean, uh, you know, there's... Uh, there's frequently uh, a, a need to uh, a need to be better informed, or to you know, or to, or to try to understand why government is act, why an agency acts in the way it does or doesn't act um, in the way that you think it ought to ought to be acting. And so, I mean, the ability to be able to get information that can help you understand what is happening or, or what isn't or what isn't happening or what you know what the government knows about any number of things and and <laughs> and isn't sharing voluntarily with the, with the public is is something that certainly in the type of society we like to fancy ourselves as i mean the open open democratic society i think is is just a vital tool for for society and like many many time many civil uh, civil rights and and, and and civil liberty sorts of things. Um, not everybody in society is going to exercise it um, constantly, or even, or even ever <laughs> necessarily. But I mean, there are interested parties that that, that act as surrogates that um, uh, that really do uh, benefit society um, at large. And you know, I, I think that you kind of begin walking the the road towards. Uh, 
you know, towards a, a dictatorship. Maybe that's kind of up, uh, overstating the case. But I mean, when you have a, when you have a society that basically doesn't have any ability to get any information except what the except what the government wants to give it. Exactly, like China or Russia. Right. Let me mm-hmm. give an example that I think people who are driving by might understand and maybe see how maybe they might want to ask for it. I'll right. tell you the story. Okay. I had made only one request, a Freedom of Information Act request, and let me tell you this story, and people who listen to it are going to go, oh, my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> All right. So um, I was divorcing back in the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. and my ex-spouse was dating an IRS agent and I got audited and the first year I got audited I thought oh crumb I got audited I went with my accountant and we spent a whole day with the IRS Mm -hmm. and there was no change in fact we showed him how they owed me money but I didn't want to ask for it because I thought I better leave well enough alone (laughs) (laughs) okay so we had no change and I thought oh that was that was terrible cost me a lot of money but all right you know everybody gets audited once in a while and I'm clean so I felt good And my accountant said to me at the time, she said, you know, Mari, now that once you're audited and you're clean, you'll be left alone. Lo and behold, the next year, I got another audit. And I said, this is very strange. Why am I being audited again? And it was something really stupid, like over the the cost of my malpractice insurance as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. You know, they were questioning that. They couldn't question too much, but they were questioning that. So again, we had to go back and spend a half a day at the IRS. And I said, you know, this is really bizarre. But I thought, okay, no change again. That was, you know, all right. Next year, I get audited again. And this time I read in the Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state of California, an article that was also um, in the, uh, I guess it was the, I don't know, not the New York Times, I think it was in the uh, Wall Street Journal, that Um, there was a congressional investigation into IRS agents who were using their access to have ex-spouses get an audit or something that they were looking, you know, they were looking in and there was a whole, it was John Glenn who had led this investigation. So I Uh read this and I get this audit notice. So I called my accountant and I said, you know what, my ex-spouse, by this time he married this IRS agent and the first first he was dating her then he married her mm-hmm. then he divorced her but anyway for those three years in that time period I was audited three times the third one I called up and I was furious I said look you have audited me tw- the last two years you're asking again my ex was you know involved with this IRS agent and I want to know what you're doing and I I'm asking for a Freedom of Information Act, and I'm going to write, and how do I do this? Because I didn't know how to do it. Right. And so I wrote to to Washington and everything, and I had written a letter saying I thought that this was really abusive. There was no reason in the world for me to be audited again. I had been a good girl. (laughs) (laughs) I had been clean. I had been honest. So anyway, what ended up happening is they wrote me back. Oh, by the way, in this interim, when I wrote that letter, within like a week and a half of that letter, they dropped the audit and said, you don't have to come in. (laughs) Okay, we're dropping it. No more problems. But I had mentioned her name and everything. So I I still wanted to know because I was furious that this happened. And I felt that this was an abusive action. And you know what they sent me? They sent me back my letter. This is all that's in the file. Mm -hmm. That's all that they did. Although I did hear from my children that um, my ex's spouse 
had uh, they had divorced and she had moved up to Northern California from Southern California. So I never found out, but that's how I used it. Uh-huh. And it didn't. All they gave me back was my home letter. Uh-huh. This is well, all you we know, got. Your um, your story is is <laughs> is not is not. I mean, I have heard things similar to that, particularly in the sense of people. Um, wanting to find out what they have on file with the FBI, right? And then basically, on the only thing the FBI has is is your is the letter that you send asking for your file because they don't have a, they don't have a file on you. Um, but but uh, when you tell me your story, I mean, one of the interesting aspects to this, and, and I think it would be useful for you, the audience, to understand this is that the statute is really ultimately about uh, about uh, information that the government physically has and so when you have when you have agents who are acting in a kind of a um, extra legal sort of a capacity and and auditing people um, for as personal favors and whatnot you as likely as not are, are involved in a situation where you don't have you don't you don't have a paper trail being created explaining why this is all happening. Well, I did and ask for an inv- I had demanded an investigation mm-hmm. and I wanted to have documentation of what kind of investigation occurred and I got nothing. Right. Well, I mean again, your your ability to ask the uh, the government or the IRS to investigate is is something that that's different from from FOIA, I mean FOIA right. is a FOIA gives you all the rec. Your only right under FOIA is to ask for information, and then they're required. Yeah, I wanted to they're see required to respond to you, and and they responded to you by saying your letter is the only information you have. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to see the results, or I wanted to see what they did. I wanted to have some right. documentation of that sure. investigation, which they didn't give me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's quite possible that they didn't that they didn't investigate. I mean, but there are, um, as I said earlier, there is a law enforcement. Um, exemption but i mean if they'd had a they'd had any records they would have uh, they would have at least had to indicate to you that there was you know that there was some sort of record and they could have exempted it but i mean i was it, thinking that because it was probably a personnel file if they did do an investigation into mm-hmm. her do you know mm-hmm. what i mean right. so i was thinking so i i left it cuz i thought leave well enough alone they dropped the audit i don't need any problems with the IRS. sure Sure. But I thought it was interesting. That was my first time ever asking for it, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. and, and it was, you know, most people don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us how do you if you have something like we had a guy on our show who happens to be a uh, a DJ here. Right. And um, he had been a journalist and he had been working for some um, organization that was considered, I think, subversive. So there were investigation the the CIA had some documents on him so he mm-hmm. he had to file a freedom of information act and he had, ended up getting an attorney and they ended up settling and they ended up giving him information that they originally didn't want to give him he was on our show huh. so that was an interesting one as well so people need to know basically if they are worried that the government has something on them for some reason something comes up you know let will you tell us step by step what you should do well, again, I mean, you know, you can't always get every all the information that you want, and and when people think that the government has information about themselves, I mean, um, without without going into that that specific aspect further, but I mean, that's the, as you probably know that that also impacts on on the on the Privacy Act, but. Um, 
what uh, what you can do i mean, i i i'll just i'll just say what you can uh, the way you would go about making a, a FOIA request if you right. really had if you really hadn't done that before the first the first thing is that a, a lot of the burden is on is on you personally to decide what it what kind of information you think exists and i mean i guess the only way i can explain that is 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 that commonsensically um once we hit upon a subject that we're we're interested in we can kind of begin to imagine in our minds what sort of what sort of documentary evidence there might be of the concerning <coughs> concerning that that subject and so um, once you've decided the sorts of records you're looking for, and, and and I don't mean to say that your description is going to be completely limiting, but um, one of the aspects of the Freedom of Information Act is that um, you're required to identify the information as specifically as possible so that somebody with a reasonable amount of knowledge about the record systems of the agency would be able to, would be able to locate it. Um, so, you know, you have to give it your best shot. And a lot of, a lot of times, you know, particularly, particularly with attorneys, they'll be kind of, you know, all this, uh, all, you know, uh, every, every possible thing that they can imagine and, and, you know, the, the, the not limited to sort of phraseology right, thrown right. In as well. Um, but you, but not only do you have to find, do you have to decide what sort of subject you're, you're, how, how to describe what you're, looking for but you also have to make an educated guess as far as what agency has the records and um, sometimes that's going to be obvious um, uh, like in your case with the IRS and sometimes it might not be so obvious but um, you know again that's a, that's a matter of of, of using uh, you know of, of using an educated guess um, then you you write it down in a le- I mean uh, 15 years ago or less um, Basically, the only the only way you could communicate a Freedom of Information Act request was in writing. Um, the uh, a, the government had since um, has <coughs> allowed for fa- for for um, to re- they'll receive uh, requests by fax, um, and I'd say more recently, probably the majority of agencies will actually allow you to send an email request. Um, that. My understanding of email requests has been that there is still a little bit of problem with with being able to uh, to authenticate it, um, and so some agencies I think are at least um, less willing than others to to accept an email request as as a uh, as a legitimate request. But generally speaking, I think email is is a is an avenue one can use. So you you say something like you say something like under the Freedom of Information Act, and then I would always I would always use the statutory site, although that is, that in itself is not necessary. But that you know that's just kind of like the key, uh, which the statutory site for the Freedom of Information is five U.S.C. five fifty two, um, and uh, I, then I'd say I would like to request the following information. Then I would describe the information as much as possible if. If it is about something, if it's about some in- interface you had individually with, or, or somebody else um, had with the agency, I would describe that relationship as much as possible. Like the DJ you were referring to, if he thought that he had been under surveillance by the FBI or the CIA, for right, he right. would he he would have a much better chance 
of of the agency finding that record if he said you know i believe i was surveilled because i was a member of the of of the you know the sts or whatever uh, right, um, right. um <coughs> at such and such a time and and i know that the fbi was uh, you know you know like the like like the berkeley student uh, the berkeley student movement or something um uh you know just to, to bring it to california but um then you would then you would send that to to the agency and now how um, do you know where at the agency do you look up on their website and see is there a uh, the best web the best website to um, to find and I think I think a number of public interest groups now have probably uh, have probably have have contact lists but the primary list that uh, that I I always have used in the past and could would continue to use if I personally were doing it was go to the Justice Department's website which is usdoj.gov you go to their home page and at the bottom one of the links at the bottom of the home page is FOIA and you click on that that takes you um, to an interior page and I believe that one of them one of one of those uh, uh, one of uh, the choices there is something like principal contacts at at other agencies and there's another one of principal contacts at the Justice Department and they have they don't have every agency under the sun but they have the majority of, of certainly of major agencies and and their official um, information as far as as how to get in contact with them either you know by through the mail or email or or by telephone or or whatnot um you're required to identify the request on your your most people most agencies require you to identify the request as a FOIA request on the on the envelope um but you know i mean in the in the worst of all possible you know, the, the the most the uh, if you if you don't have any idea where uh, um how to get to the uh, how to find the agency's address? You just say, um, you know, Department of of Interior, Department of, Home, of Homeland Security, or whatever, and then, you know, uh, find out at least the zip code in Washington, and send, you know, with an attention FOIA request, and you know, theoretically, hopefully that that will get that should get to the to the right place. I mean, the more specific you are in addressing your request, the more quickly it'll get to where to the place where it uh, where it's supposed to be uh, responded or, or you know dealt with initially, and that it will save you precious time if time is 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 important to you. Um, the other thing, as far as the letter is concerned, is there are fees that can be um, that can be charged under the under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, which are for duplication and for search time, which is the time it would take somebody at the agency to find the rec- find records that were re- that are responsive to your request. And um, in the statute, um, most individual m- most requesters get two hours of free search time and a hundred pages free. So um, once you once you exhaust those um, uh, those elements, then you you pay typically probably 15 cents or more a page and then the fees are the search fees depend on on the uh uh how how high up the the ladder the uh 
the uh, person who has to look for the information. I mean, if you can, if uh, if a clerical person can find it, then they they charge you at a clerical rate. But if it's a pref, if it's a professional person who has to who has to locate the information, then you'll get charged more. And that's that's a per hour charge, which is oftentimes prorated by the quarter hour by agencies. Um, so um, what I always do when I make a request, I, I mean I don't make a lot of requests now, but I used to make a fair number of them. Um, is I will say um, I agree to pay X number of dollars um, without um, you know without any further contact. If it's going to be more than that, please contact me um, for authorization. And that tells the that tells the agency that I will pay fifty, seventy-five dollars, whatever. But if it's going to be more than that, I won't. Um, I won't pay it unless I unless I agree to pay it. Um, and so they will get in contact with me if if they go over that. Often, do you have to you send know, a check with it? Uh, uh, no, you don't. Oh. Have, you don't have to. You don't have to pay in advance. But you do. Okay. I mean, the, the, again, the phraseology is that you have to commit to. Uh, to paying to paying the fees, I see. so um, you can't basically say I um, I refuse to pay any fees, <laughs> um, right, right? And uh, you know, I mean, they can they'll then call back and say, or contact you and say, well, you know, it's going to cost twenty five dollars. Unless you pay us twenty five dollars, we're not going to release the information. But I mean, if you don't have an agreement on fees with the agency, one of the things the agency can do is basically say, tell you, we're not going. Either we're not going to process your request until you agree to pay that you'll pay reasonable fees, or they will process it and say, you know, until we get this fee from you, we're <laughs> we're not right. going to we're not going to release the information to you. So, so I mean, you have to you have to be willing to pay the fees. So, um, you know, you don't sometimes fees can conceivably certainly be in the hundreds of dollars, if not the thousands of dollars, and obviously most people don't want to pay those sorts of those sorts of fees. So, you know, you're not gonna you 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 want to protect yourself from getting involved in in a in a possible fee situation that's way beyond what you're what you're willing to pay. I mean some uh some business interests will basically pay, you know, whatever Whatever it, it costs uh, legitimately to get the information. I mean, this is one one of the reason businesses are the single um, uh, biggest in terms of in terms of the percentage biggest users of the FOIA because um, because they're willing to pay the costs. Um, so, let me just introduce you again. We're speaking with Harry A. Hammett, who happens to be the editor and publisher of Access Reports, which is a biweekly newspaper. Uh, newsletter, excuse me, on the Freedom of Information Act. And we're talking today about the Freedom of Information Act, open government laws and policies. And he's telling us how we could do this ourselves. And you can find out more about his newsletter and more about this kind of thing at accessreports.com. Also, I have right in front of me his book that came out in uh, 2006 called Litigation Under the Federal Open Government Laws for t of 2006. And what I see that's real helpful here, too, is there's some sample request letters at the end for ex expedited processing. And the appendix has a lot of great information. So if you are uh, a university student here on campus and you're interested in learning more about this, this is a great book to have. I'm so glad I have it on my shelf as a resource as well. And um, it's actually 635 pages, but uh, of good stuff, and it's it's not hard to read. It's it's real helpful, and it explains a lot about what this Freedom of Information Act is all about. Let's get back, Harry, to talk about 
Um, you were talking about businesses use it a lot. Can you give some examples of why a business would want to exercise its right to the Freedom of Information Act? Um, this is something, <laughs> something that, that I've thought about quite a bit, and, and, and part of what I did earlier on my, in my career before I started writing the newsletter was I worked for a company called FOI Services, which basically makes requests on behalf of mostly people, mostly businesses who are in the who are regulated by the by the Food and Drug Administration, and so uh, I got you know to know um, quite a bit about this. I I think a lot of people uh, when they when they look at this idea, their their immediate thought is oh, in industrial espionage, they're trying to get um, you know the formula for Coca Cola or, or or somebody somebody's trade secrets. Um, my my response to that is that whereas i i suppose a business would would love it if their competitors trade secrets fell into their laps but i mean most businesses and and pretty much all the businesses i dealt with at in at foi services and have dealt with in any way since are sophisticated enough to know more or less the sorts of information that might be available and what I think what businesses who use FOIA fairly frequently are really interested in on a on a regular basis is to understand more about what the government's regulatory attitude is towards their industry. And so when I was at FOI Services, um, a lot of people used to contact us and they used to want to get um, inspection reports of various um you know, manufacturing um, facilities of of either either their own their own facilities sometimes, but but a competitor's facility or or not if not a direct competitor, someone who was in you know who was in a line of business that was similar to theirs. And I think what they were looking for really is what um, the report might reveal about what the FDA was <laughs> was looking for, and that would help them understand. The regulatory environment better, you know. I mean, there there's other sorts of internal sorts of policy documents that any regulatory agency is likely to put out that will shed light on on how they, you know, how they go about um, regulating the uh, their the industry that they regulate and uh, or how you know, to what get their attitudes are. I'm, yeah, I'm I was going to say about how to get their drugs approved, maybe. Oh sure, yeah. I mean, I mean, again, another thing is that I, I think most people um, would look at, uh, particularly someone who's who's entering the dr- the the drug industry um, on the on the ground level, so to speak, would say, uh, if I've got a I've got a drug that's similar to a drug that that Pfizer or Merck already puts out, and if I can see. If I if I can see the yeah the the file on on their drug approval, then that's going to help me understand what sorts of things I need to do to uh, to get the FDA to pay to um, you know to approve my drug. Yes, ap- I, absolutely. And so I mean, as I said earlier, I don't think it's so much. Um, you know, I want to know what the you know what the formulation for Pfizer's drug is, as much as um, how did they get it done? Yeah, right, <laughs> absolutely. And I would think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me now. I mean, I never really thought about that, but um, any company who also maybe wants to get a uh, a government contract 
-hmm. Maybe if they see that uh, Hughes Aircraft or something, or, you know, the competitors say, well, how are they getting these? I want to see what was the um, regulatory scheme for this and how did they get approved, then they know what they need to do. Yeah, now, I mean, contracting information is another big area of interest for businesses, and that that has become a lot more more settled as time has gone by, and, and... Unfortunately, from 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 my perspective, as as looking at at information as being helpful in 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 giving the government what it wants, the government, the government, particularly government contractors, tend to look at it more as well. If X company knows what uh, what Y company um, uh, offered to do or or was willing. You know, willing to charge for something, then then they're just going to underbid. <laughs> they're going to just they're oh. going to underbid Y company, and that's not going to be fair. And oh. and I'm thinking from my point of view, well, the government the government wants the benefit of 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 X being able to underbid Y. So right. I mean, why is a why you know why isn't this something? To me, I've always thought that information sharing within this sort of business contracting community benefits. The government ultimately, because again, the contractors understand better what it is that that the government really wants, rather than kind of kind of shooting in the dark to a greater extent and saying, "Well, I'll do this and that" without really any, you know, any any, any foreknowledge. Um, hmm. And about uh, um, contract, as I say, contracting is is a is a big area for FOIA requests. And about a dozen years ago or so. Um, some agency, and I think it was probably uh, the Defense Department initially, no one's ever really been able to figure out where this came from exactly, but some agency got Congress to pass a, uh, an, a what, is, what, is, what is called under the Freedom of Information an, an Exemption 3 statute, which means that it is a statute outside of the Freedom of Information Act that controls the dis- or restricts the disclosure of information and so when somebody makes a, a Freedom of Information Act request, an agency can cite one of these B3 exemptions, Exemption 3 um, statutes, and say, well, this is, the ba- this is the legal basis for withholding the information. And the way that scheme works is that there's literally hundreds of these statutes. And <laughs> so rather than, rather than codify each of them individually as a separate exemption under the Freedom of Information Act, they just basically let you bring them in and they have to fit a certain type of a criteria, which is basically that they, they severely restrict the discretionary discretion of the agency to disclose the information or they describe types of information that that are to be withheld. Those those are the, that's the criteria for for the application. But uh, um, Congress passed this thing that basically said, well, technical technical and cost proposals, all these sorts of proposals that that contractors normally uh, normally provide to an agency for you know in, when they're when they're bidding on a contract. Um, all of a sudden, this information. Um, is now is now totally exempt under oh, the Information gosh. Act, um, and so anyway, so <laughs> that that that's, was in, in, that was in part a burden problem. Agen- agencies who deal with these business requests just uh, ultimately concluded that it was just taking too much time <laughs> to, do, to do all this stuff. So. Oh my gosh! Let me ask you something. Congress sure. has has just recently amended the Freedom of Information Act. Right. So let's what tell me tell us about those amendments and you know 
were they necessary, and have they watered down mm-hmm. what our rights are, or what have they done? Well, you know, we're, uh, President Bush signed, uh, the con- well, Congress, uh, both houses of Congress passed the legislation on December 18th, and, and President Bush signed them into law on the 31st. Um, and so we're really at a stage where we're kind of beginning to figure out whether these are good or bad. I, I certainly, I wouldn't say, I'm not a big fan of them personally, but I wouldn't say that they're bad as much as I would guess, I would say they're more indifferent in many ways. I mean, they, Can you they, give did, us they did a lot of things that I'm not sure were the, were the most important sorts of things to do, but I mean, I'll, I'll be glad to explain more or less what, you know, what they did. Could um, you do that? That would be great. Um, the most important thing, and I, and I hope I don't get too, esoteric, <laughs> too esoteric here because this involves, this involves a fairly arcane legal issue, but um, under the freedom, one, of, one of the things that, that Congress did when it, when it first went to amend the Freedom of Information Act in a positive way in 1974, as I said earlier, the act was passed in 1966, and it quickly became apparent that there were there were a number of problems because Congress hadn't really been specific enough about how this whole th- whole process should work. So in 1974, Congress passed um, some fairly substantial procedural changes, and one of those was to allow a person who sued the agency for records um, to collect attorney's fees if if he or she substantially prevailed. Well, that's and important. That, yeah, if you're going to yeah. um, So that, that, uh, um, that aspect of the law developed over time, but I, I believe it was in, um, in 2001, the Supreme Court ruled in a, a case that is, uh, is known as Buchanan, which is B-U-C-K-H-A-N-N-O-N, um, that it was a, a suit brought, I believe it's under the Fair Housing Amendments or the Fair Housing Act, um, which had a, a similar attorney's fees cover, recovery scheme that said that, you know, sub, that used the terms substantially prevailed. Um, the, the Supreme Court ruled that to substantially prevail it meant that you actually had to have the court rule in your favor. Mm-hmm. And under the Freedom of Information Act, you were you were eligible to for fees if your suit had basically caused the government to disclose information and oftentimes what happens in litigation um, is that over time you narrow down what it is that you really want or what the, or the agency decides they are willing to disclose some information that they that they previously withheld and so an agency will disclose information um, short of of being ordered by the court, that's that's right. It's that's just like most, a, a yeah, it's like a stipulation that they yeah, agree to. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's yeah. A, that's the most common sort of a situation. Um, In fact, that's what so, happened to one of our our DJ. That's yeah, what they finally yeah. did. Un, un, under the Buchanan um, under the Buchanan holding, um, that was no longer adequate. Um, that did not qualify as as substantially prevailing, uh. and so Congress um, basically fixed that in, the, in these amendments, and so now we're back to where it used to be, and and it, the standard is basically, again, as I explained, uh, if, the, if, you're, if filing the lawsuit caused the government to um, 
to disclose more information or do something that was, you know, that gave you a favorable uh, result, then that would that would in, make you eligible for for uh, for a fee. Well, that's fee. good. That's so very that good. that kind of that kind of uh, re, that kind of reinstitutes the status quo, and 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 uh, was basically you know a good I think a good congressional response to to that in a unique situation. Um, the other thing that the amendments do, which is it's, it's an interesting thing on the federal level is that they create essentially an, an ombudsman or mediator's office in, in, in the National Archives. And basically the idea here is that um, requesters who are frustrated, particularly because their requests haven't been responded to in time and that those sorts of issues of delay, um, could go to this ombudsman for help and they would be it would basically be some form of informal mediation more or less which might result in a written opinion which would be only only advisory um but it might it might carry weight um one to of try the reasons to try and avoid the litigation yes. to, yeah, yeah yeah basically to try to avoid litigation right. but well, that's a good i mean idea. if you're dissat- if you're still dissatisfied you still can you still can 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 sue the agency, so it doesn't doesn't take away your. It's not an either or choice by any means. Right. Um, so the ombudsman will make a recommendation, in, would, yes, in right. writing, and then the the actual agency doesn't have to abide by it. And if they don't abide by it, does that have any weight when it gets to court? That again, the, I mean, those are issues. Um, you don't know yet. Certainly, to re- well to read the legislation, I can I can tell you pretty certainly that. Um, the ombudsman's opinion does not will not have any uh, it doesn't have any any legal um, precedence in any way. I right. mean, if a court wants to accept it as as you know as an expert opinion, right. then then I, it could certainly do that. It and may have the, some weight. Yeah. One of the reasons that that uh, that this came about on the federal level at this point is that there are a number of state statutes that have various types of, of ombudsman models. Um, right. And I recently wrote a, a paper about this for an organization called the National FOI Coalition, and those papers are at a website called nfoic.org under resources. They're called, I think they're called um, white papers or reports or something like that. But anyways, um, the states have have the states have had some success in in these models, uh, but uh, the problem, as a practical matter, is that the federal government gets way way more requests than any state gets, and so whether this model could happen on the federal level, I mean, could work on the federal level, is 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 really um, kind of uh, you know kind of a leap of faith to a certain extent. But I mean, that idea could be. You know, it, it certainly is an idea that has potential. Um, its downside is that it could end up just being another another, another snarling point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, other, there are some other parts of the of the legislation that one again one of the aspects that I think could be good if agencies are really able to implement it in its in its in its best form is that uh, agencies will be required to provide some sort of tracking mechanism so that a requester can call up, um, you know, say at the State Department and say, you know, what's going on with uh, with this request and 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 you know get some real 
you know some real some useful information as far as far as following the progress i mean i think in the best of all possible worlds people would like to see the federal government have some sort of tracking system like you know UPS or, or FedEx exactly <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the private world. I, I think that's way beyond our expectations. But still, well, if, that everything... mo- if that moves agencies in the direction of of creating you know a better tracking system for requests, that's probably that's probably all in all a, a, a positive benefit. We're speaking with Harry Hammett, who happens to be the editor and publisher of Access Reports. You can find out more about his newsletter at accessreports.com. And we're talking about the Freedom of Information Act. How many Freedom of Information Act requests are there per year? Well, this, um, this, uh, this sounds like a terribly mundane sort of a subject, but this has become kind of controversial um, in, in recent years because the way the way in which certain um, agencies account for their requests um, has really skewed things um, dramatically. I, uh, in general, what the, what the sorts of things that I would personally consider to be FOI requests, the government gets probably in ex- certainly in excess of a million, but um, probably in the, probably. I'm just guesstimating. Say, say, say anywhere between a million and a million and a half FOIA requests uh, at at most. Um, what happened about half a dozen years ago is that the is that the um, uh, Department of Veterans Affairs um, responds to lots and lots of requests for um, medical records and whatnot of of individual veterans, and and they fill those fairly pretty expeditiously, actually. Um, but those were never considered in the past. Those weren't considered FOIA requests. Um, they were considered they're, they're actually they're actually literally Privacy Act requests. But um, they are now considered FOIA requests, and the uh, the VA now accounts for like sixty to seventy five percent of all the requests <laughs> wow. made in the government. And and the last figure that came out was that there are now I. <laughs> I mean, this sounds so incredible when I say that there's a, there's a really only about a million requests. Um, the most recent annual reports on on this issue indicate, I believe, that there are 21 million requests. Wow! And again, I believe when I the VA has a huge number, but actually, what's driving this machine is, I believe, is uh, is the accounting that the Social Security Administration does. It reported, uh, if I. Uh, I, I may not have the figure exactly right, but I think this is close to what to what I understand it was. Um, they reported 18 million requests, and when I heard that, I thought to, I thought to myself, well, no no human could possibly <laughs> could possibly fill a FOIA request at the rate of 18 million a year. Oh so all of this, I don't know exactly what kind of requests those are, but I think it's basically all sorts of people and, and entities asking for confirmation on social security numbers and whatnot. And again, that's a, that's a type of an information request that clearly is an information request, but it's not a to my mind doesn't isn't a freedom of information act request. So Right. So the, that, the, th- those records might be easily available just by looking for them as opposed to having Well, a, I mean, I, th- I think they're available. I think they're available by through some database that right, you, that, right. you, that the Social Security Administration makes available. So 
so the official number is 21 million, but I, I would say, as in realism, you know, look at it at, at, in the way that we always have looked in the past at, at what it constitutes a FOIA request. That agency-wide, you're probably you're probably talking, you know, in the low millions. So what would what is the VA? What kind of requests are they under the Veterans Administration? Well, I believe that they are mostly um, people asking for their medical records or or personnel records or, or okay. some sorts of transfer information. I, they're 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 very much they're very much in, uh, individual subject to individual sorts of records and not not subject matter in uh, records or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, because I, I mean, I read some of the newsletters about some of the really important Freedom of Information Act. And Lloyd says we only have really about three minutes. So let me let me just ask if you can kind of wrap up and say, it has the Internet had an effect on the Freedom of Information Act? I think that the Internet was, uh, I think many of us in the at the end of the 90s thought that the Internet was going to have a huge effect on on FOIA because it would allow agencies to make much more information available from the get-go, and you wouldn't have to uh, go through the Freedom of Information Act to get uh, to get the records. Um, that looked like it was that looked like it was had a prospect of of becoming the case. But I mean, after after 9/11, a lot of agencies began to dismantle a lot of public information sources from their websites and rethink exactly what sorts of information they wanted to make public. Um, and that process, that that immediate kind of retrenchment after 9/11, has we're we're kind of going going in the other direction of of making more making more information available again at this point. But I think we are still not anywhere near where we were, you know, like at the end of the well, I mean before before 9/11. And I don't think because of 9/11, I don't think we will ever be. Um, fulfill the, that sort of a promise, but um, well, I so I mean, there's there's more and more information that that at one time anybody would say, oh sure, that I, I mean, it would be great if people who are interested in this could get at it. Now, now, oftentimes agencies say, oh well, you know, what if you know, what if what if Osama bin Laden could get that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of how you they analyze these sorts of problems. Yeah, I have one little baby question before we turn off because Lloyd has given me the sign that we got to end, but okay. I just have a quick question. Does we have an election coming up for a new president? And just tell me, yes or no, do you think that the how the Freedom of Information Act is uh, interpreted depends on the administration? Well, certainly the Bush administration has interpreted it in, in a rather niggardly way. But I, I, I don't think there are interpretations from the various attorney generals, and I don't think that that necessarily ultimately makes a great amount of difference. But, I mean, the attitude of an administration generally towards, towards the availability of information can, can, be fairly, can be fairly crucial. And I think that in a very shorthand way, um, the FOIA started out its life as being very, very much of a bipartisan uh, process. And one of the names that's involved at the, in the early stages is, is Donald Rumsfeld when he was a congressman from Illinois. But um, in the, starting, say, about at the Reagan... Uh, the okay, Reagan we're going to have to... Lloyd, says we have to go. We, we're going to have to invite you back because okay. there's so much. Okay, well, this but has been thank, wonderful. Thank you thank so much you for Thank you so me. much. And we're just going to give your website, please. You can go and, and see all the great work that Harry Hammett is doing and Access Reports at accessreports.com. And we thank you again. 
Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.